does that mean you're unretired? <laughs> oh, I don't. Okay, <laughs> but she's still here. She's going to work remotely. That's great. Good. Thanks for sharing that, Linda. So, uh, yes, good to see you all again, and glad to be back. We're getting back into Deuteronomy this morning uh, with a very short passage that uh, we're going to look at, but. Um, I wasn't sure what to do with it at first because the passage is a brief description of Moses setting apart three cities of refuge. Uh, And I was trying to decide because the topic will come up again in Deuteronomy 19. If we ever get there, it might be five years from now. Who knows? No, but uh, it also is in Numbers 35. And I was like, well, should I cover it now or should I skip it now and come back later? But I thought it had such great application, and and I'm going to go through those three today um, using those other passages as well. Uh, But um, So we're going to exposit this passage now. I think it's instructive to us not only about how we should view law and justice, but uh, also how we as a church can respond and live out the principles behind the concepts of cities of refuge. And I'll be honest, I have read the Bible, I read the Bible at least every year, um, and other parts of it much more frequently than that, and I've read about these cities of refuge, but never really put a lot of thought into it um, beyond just the reading of it. And as I got into studying it, I was like, wow, this is really fascinating. Um, And so I thought this will be good for us to uh, learn something from. Um, The topic of justice is never far from our minds, is it? Um, we want to be treated justly ourselves. Um, we want to see justice done. You hear people say, I want to see justice done, whether it's on your job, whether it's at school, whether it's in the legal system. Uh, we have this kind of desire. We want to see justice done. The question is, is it justice the way we see it or the way God sees it? Um, and the church ought to stand for justice, biblical justice. But when you throw out the term justice today, you may have found this out, it can mean it can almost be a trigger to some people uh, because the word justice has come to mean different things to different people, hasn't it? So you hear words like social justice. Well, what does that mean? Economic justice, environmental justice. This is a new one I just learned a couple months ago. I had never heard that term. There's actually a, a, a philosophy about that. And so on. And some people get uncomfortable with uh, where some churches have gone with the topic of justice. Uh, But I do believe God calls his people to be those who seek true justice in the biblical sense. Uh, We should care about it. And when we have opportunities, we should be proponents of justice. The topic of justice is perhaps most pressing when it comes to the fact or the matter of a human being that has been killed by another human being. And this is where our topic of cities of refuge come in. I'm going to read the relevant passages, then we're going to seek out what this means in two broad categories. First, we're going to look at, in our world today, uh, how would biblical principles we find about the cities of refuge, how do they apply to law and justice? And then second, we're going to look at how can the church be a place of refuge. And we will be challenged by Scripture this morning. I guarantee you this. 
uh, will be a challenge to examine our own hearts to see if we're thinking and living biblically in regards to this issue of justice. So first we'll go to our Deuteronomy passage where we're continuing from where we were actually, I think, three or four weeks ago now when we left off in Deuteronomy. Um, And it's a very short thing, and it says this, and starting in verse 41 of chapter 4, Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, uh, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. So the other relevant passage to this is in Numbers, and I'm going to read. This is a longer passage because this Deuteronomy thing is just giving kind of the, the placement of when Moses was talking about it. Um, we want to see more about what this means. So let's go to Numbers chapter 35, and starting at verse 6, we'll read to the end of the chapter, and hopefully after this we'll get a good idea what are all these cities of refuge about. It says, The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give them from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, Each, in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits, shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for, a, for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that should cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that would cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, Though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregational shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood 
And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he has fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest, who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge, to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel." It's the word of God. Indeed, there's a lot of uh, for us to consider in this passage. In fact, there was certainly the potential here for two or three sermons. Um, but I'm going to try to get through all this this morning. And there is a passage I didn't read. You can research that one on your own. That's Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 13. But since it was so similar to the Numbers passage I just read, I'm going to leave that one for you to read on your own if you like. Perhaps when we get to that part of Deuteronomy, we'll touch on the subject again. The first thing to say about the cities of refuge is that they were included in the cities that were allotted to the Levites. The Levites, you may recall, are the priestly tribe. Okay, They're the ones responsible to God and responsible to the people to stand in the gap. They're the mediator between God and the people. They were to maintain the temples. They were to perform the sacrifices and so on. They were also responsible to maintain the teaching and explaining of the law, to make sure the people knew it and understood it and obeyed it. The Levites, unlike the other tribes of Israel, did not have a large parcel of land, but instead they were given cities. And as you heard in the reading, they were scattered throughout Israel. The Levites being scattered is part of a prophecy that Jacob gave over his sons before he died. In Genesis 49, 5-7, it says this. This is Jacob speaking. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come not into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their, willingness, in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So among the blessings that Jacob was giving to his other sons, he singles out Simeon and Levi and says, they will be divided and scattered in Israel. Why? because they had committed murder. When their sister Dinah had been defiled, 
They took the law into their own hands, and they didn't just kill the one who was guilty of assaulting their sister. They killed all the males of his tribe. And so Jacob, on his deathbed, he said the tribes of Simeon and Levi would be scattered. Levi had been part of the murder. Now the tribes of Levi, that is his descendants, would be responsible to see that justice was served to the murderer and also the one who killed without hateful intent. So the Levites were given 48 cities, and six of those were to be designated cities of refuge, and they were specifically located. They were spread out so that uh, everyone in Israel would have uh, somewhat equal access to get to one. The cities actually were required to have well-maintained roads leading to them from each direction, and they were also to have clear signs frequently along the way to show how to get there. Uh, that would be so that the one fleeing the, the um, avenger of death or the avenger of blood, if they're running, they could see, all right, there's the sign and the, refuge, the city of refuge is coming up. So they had good signs, they had good roads. It was really important to God that this happened this way. So what were these cities all about? That the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. But it seems to me by studying this passage that it was also a place of refuge for the one who killed, but there was not more than one witness. And we're going to talk about that part in a bit as well. So you heard in the passage some examples of what is considered a manslayer. In today's terminology, we may substitute the word manslaughter. Okay, It's when someone is killed by someone else, but there's not any... Uh, intent or malice that led to it. And one of the most common examples we see in our time is traffic accidents. You all remember the Crestwood accident that happened recently on Crestwood and some students were hit by a car there. If someone causes an accident they're at fault at, but they did not intend to kill anyone, they may be charged with manslaughter. But if you run someone over and it was on purpose and with a motive... Then what are we charged with? Murder, right? So another example could be if someone's out hunting and they shoot at an animal, but the bullet travels and kills a person a half a mile away, they may be guilty of manslaughter. But if someone walks into a church or a school or a bank and shoots someone dead and, they're, and they had intent to go in there and do that, then they're guilty of murder. Now, in the ancient world, it was the responsibility of a close family member to avenge that death, especially if it was clearly murder. Now, it's not necessarily condoned that this was the best practice, but it was allowed. And so if a person killed a murderer and it was proven that the person they killed was a murderer, then they themselves would not be guilty of murder. And and rather, they would be seen as acting on behalf of the community in purifying the land of murder. One problem with this, human beings, right? Uh, who, does, who does this perfectly, especially in the hot moment of anger when something's happened? Um, so sometimes the vengeance happened before there was a trial. And just like in the Westerns, you know, someone gets, string them up, you know, they're ready to go right now. There's a quick desire for justice. We want it now. We want the justice 
immediately. We get frustrated when a trial takes many years, don't we, to finally get to the courtroom. It frustrates us. But when people demand quick convictions, then often the innocent can be punished, right? So the cities of refuge were a way for this process to be slowed down and protect the one who may be guilty of manslaughter or manslayer uh, versus someone who might have done a murder. One interesting part of this is that it was the one who committed the killing who needed to go to the city of refuge. In other words, he's turning himself in or she's turning herself in. There they would appeal, they would get to the city, appeal to the elders of the city. The elders of that city were obligated by God to provide refugee status until a trial could be conducted. If the trial were conducted and it was determined the killing was unintentional, then the guilty one would be confined to that city and protected there by the city leaders. If it was determined that it was murder and there was, it was not a manslaughter, then the punishment would be death. And this punishment was often carried out by a family member who was known as the avenger of blood. Now it's interesting to note that in Scripture, originally, of course, this being in the Hebrew language, the same word used here that means avenger of blood is also used in places like the book of Ruth where that same word is translated to mean kinsman redeemer. The concept of relatives looking out for each other was very strong in that ancient society. We also see, and I covered this topic on Mother's Day, that God's people are strongly pro-life. Now, people have said, well, if you claim to be pro-life, you should be against the death penalty. But this is actually the opposite of what Scripture teaches us. Scripture tells us that life is so valuable that when a murder takes place, the land is polluted. Go back to verse 33 and 34 of Numbers 35. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. In other words, if there is a clear case of murder with two or three or more witnesses, the death penalty was required. Not because they loved death, but because God loves life. I showed on Mother's Day the many passages in Scripture, many passages that talk about how each human bears the image of God and therefore all life is sacred. So allowing murder to go unchecked pollutes the land. It's very important to pay attention, though, to this important component of biblical justice. No one could be put to death without witnesses. Two or more witnesses had to speak on the matter. Now, that was more straightforward probably in those days because there's only one way to witness. Eyewitness, right? Eyewitnesses have to have eyes, and they had to have eyes that saw what happened. And they had to report what they saw. Today, people are convicted with all sorts of other kinds of evidence, right? Uh, they use DNA evidence, phone logs, and paperwork, and video, and other means that are used to convict a guilty person. We must remember, though, when it comes to the death penalty... The Bible is clear 
that no one is to be put to death except if there are two or three or more witnesses. So what did they do with those who were guilty, but there were no witnesses? Or if there was only one witness, they were protected in the city of refuge. But if they left the city, the relative of their victim, the avenger of blood, could kill them with impunity. That means they could kill them with no punishment at all. In other words, if you killed my family member, but there was no witnesses, and you're in that city of, uh, city of refuge, and you come out of that city of refuge, I can kill you. This is not today. This is back then. And I would not be charged with a crime. So the city of refuge becomes a prison to those that are in there, those, those that are using it as a refuge place. There are no guards, no one forcing the person to stay, except the fear of leaving the city and being found by the avenger of blood. Now, is it possible that a family could say, I forgive you, and we're not going to avenge? That's possible. That could have worked out, possibly. So now we understand something. When we look at the biblical requirement of two or three witnesses, especially in the case of the death penalty, but actually for any testimony, now we can understand a little better one of those Ten Commandments. Do not bear false witness against another. Because if you said you were a witness to a crime that never happened, the punishment that you would receive was the punishment of the crime that you falsely accused someone of. Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 20 tells us about this. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. That means before the community, uh, they would have a trial, but they use the word before the Lord. Before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the, wal- if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, Then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So if you commit perjury by saying someone else committed murder, and the penalty for murder was death, what would happen to you? You would be put to death for perjury. Seems like a pretty good way to reduce perjury, right? What happens to people today that commit perjury? Usually nothing. Sometimes a slap on the wrist. Very rarely do they get jail or anything like that. The one who killed, who was found to be a manslaughter, had their life saved, but they still lost their freedom because they were confined to that city. But their sentence was set in the time that the time of their confinement in the city of refuge was until the high priest died. You see, blood had to be atoned for. When a murderer was put to death, his death was atoned for the the blood he had shed. Um, For the manslayer, the accidental death that he caused, that death was atoned by the death of the high priest. There must always be atonement for sin, in particular because God is so pro-life there had to be a blood atonement for every human death that was caused by another person. And you can imagine how the one confined to the city of refuge for 20 years 
would be envious of the one who was there only a month before the high priest died, right? Maybe it would seem a little inequitable, but that's how it was. In fact, I found an interesting part of this history. This is from a Jewish writer that I read uh, over the week. Um, Not from scripture, but he wrote that the mother of the high priest would go from city of refuge to city of refuge, bringing gifts and food and comfort items to those who were refugees from the avenger of blood. Why did she do that? She did that so that they would not pray to God that the high priest would die. That's a good mom, right? <laughs> so, so she would, in fact, she'd be so generous that she'd hope that instead of praying for his death, they would pray for his long life. Because um, you can imagine how that would feel if you, if you thought everyone was rooting for your death. <laughs> I want to summarize for a moment the legal part, and then we're going to move to the part where it applies to the church. So just a summary. Murder was a death penalty offense because life was so valu- is so valuable. The one who killed another without malice needed a place of safety, yet they still had to pay for their error by being confined to the city of refuge. A murderer could not be uh, put to death on the testimony of two to three witnesses. If there were no witnesses, the death penalty could not be applied. All killings had to be atoned for. The murderer was atoned for when the death penalty was carried out on the murderer, and for all others, the, death, the, the, the atonement was made by the death of the high priest. Throughout history now, this concept has often been applied by the church in different ways. So you may remember from literature, from a movie you've seen, that uh, there, in the past, in some places in the world, this is still the case, where if you run into a church... The, the, the magistrate or the sheriff or whatever can't chase you into the church. The law can't come into the church. It's not the case here. But Jean Valjean is an example from Alain Miserable. He sent, spent time in a church protected from the lawman who was hunting him. I wouldn't recommend that today. If you are guilty of a crime and the police are chasing you, don't swing on by to Oasis Church and expect you'll be safe because the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office will come right in after you um but even though the church is not a refuge in that sense the church should is to be a place of refuge and it is a place of refuge the grace is abundant here and those who have received grace are to supply others with grace as well the tribe of levi had to understand grace you see levi had been guilty of murder if he had had the law applied to him, he would have had the death penalty. But there was grace. However, his tribe was scattered and spread out across Israel in those cities. And in the city of refuge, every time a refugee came, every time they had a trial, they would have been reminded of the grace they had received, the life that they received through grace. Each time they offered a place of sanctuary to the one fleeing the avenger of blood, they ought to have remembered the grace they themselves had received. And every time the current high priest died, and they say the joy of those being released without any further fear of the avenger of death, when they saw that, they must have recognized what a great gift atonement was. The death of the high priest atoned for every accidental death. 
So the church should be reminded whenever another great sinner comes through the doors that we received grace and ought to show grace to others. If you have been in the church for decades, perhaps in some way you suffered for Jesus over these years, do not look down on the one who is newly arrived because the same grace you received is how you should receive them. I don't know if we have any murderers or manslayers here. In my last church, one of the finest examples of a Christian man I've ever known had been a manslayer. He got into a fight at a bar and killed a man. And he served time in a California prison convicted of manslaughter. Later on, he learned about the great high priest who died for his freedom. But our great high priest covers for more than murders. He can atone for every sin. In those days, whether there was one person fleeing the avenger of death or a thousand or more, the death of one man, the high priest, atoned for all. But our great high priest, Jesus, is better. Hebrews 4.14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The church, even more than the cities of refuge, is a place for grace and mercy today. In the church, just as in the city of refuge, there is love for the sinner. There's a desire to offer a place of rest. In the church, just as in the city of refuge, is a desire for justice. We ought to take the biblical principles of justice and work together to apply them in our own context. There's one more concept toward the end of Numbers 35. There was to be no ransom for the life of our murderer. In other words, you couldn't pay to get anyone off. No money can do it. No one could buy the murderer's life. He must be put to death. While other legal issues could be settled with the offering of restitution, murder was not included. To accept money in place of atonement through blood, Scripture says, is to pollute the land. The land would be defiled if they did not follow these instructions. Throughout church history, there have been people who consider themselves Christ followers who care little to nothing about actually living out the life of holiness that Christ commands us. They don't want to study the Bible too hard because it may make them change how they're supposed to live. Or they want to pinch the words of Scripture to squeeze out of them justification for sinful living or sinful thinking. And we should be reminded today about the seriousness of sin. While our context was primarily about killings, we see that our God takes very seriously our obedience. The danger is looking at a passage like ours today and deciding it doesn't apply to us. Because maybe we think, oh, I'm not a murderer. Or because we don't need cities of refuge, we have lawyers and courts. The reality is, though, that we're all guilty. We bear the weight of sin of murder in the fact that we treat the value of life so lightly. 
And more than that, we are part of the fallen race of mankind. And Adam, Scripture says, we all sin. So while we are accountable to God for our individual sins, we also bear a share in the human problem because all of us are born into sin. But we are not guilty of murder, some might insist. I refuse to be held accountable for society, you might say. And if that's your position, if you only want to be held accountable for your own wickedness, okay, test yourself against the commandments and see how you're doing. But the commandments are about actions, and Jesus pointed out the heart determines even more. So if you refuse to acknowledge your part in the sinful race of humans, let me ask you this. Have you ever been angry with another person? Have you ever insulted someone? Have you ever said to someone, you fool? Maybe someone on the television. Maybe you wouldn't do it face to face. Then according to Jesus, if you've done any of those things, you're guilty, even if you never killed someone. Matthew 5, 21 from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it is said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, if the audio of our whole lives was stored in the cloud, the evidence abounds that we're guilty. And if the evidence in our hearts, the words we never said but thought, were exposed to the light, the guilt would overwhelm us. And so then we would have to say with Paul in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then the really good news as you flip to chapter 8, there is therefore now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And even when you sin, you continue to serve Christ by confessing, by growing, by moving forward. You see, you who are in Christ are not in the flesh anymore. Romans 8, 9 to 11 says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so this church must be a place of refuge, and we must seek to be a city of refuge for all the guilty who would run for protection through the doors. May we, like the Levites, be willing and ready to surround the guilty who enter here, knowing that their sin can be atoned for just as ours was, Because the death of our great high priest is sufficient to atone for all sin. And I mentioned earlier that the cities of refuge had to have well-paved roads so that the one fleeing the avenger of death could get there easily. And there had to be clear and easily readable road signs 
pointing them to the place of refuge. Well, our church has a nice road outside and a nice sign, but I submit to you this morning that you are the road and you are the sign that can bring people to this place of refuge. You are the ones who can see those on the road looking for the place of refuge. And you are given this privilege to be among those who point people to the place of refuge. The truth of a matter depended on the testimony of two witnesses. And some people believe this is why Jesus sent them out in pairs. We're not to do it alone. He would send the disciples out in twos to share the gospel. Why? Because it was well understood in that day and age that it was with two witnesses that a matter was established. So he would send out two. Will you testify to this gospel? Will you find the ones fleeing on the road and point them toward the place of refuge? You see, it isn't the building that's the place of refuge. It's the confession of the church. May we be those who live in appreciation of the grace we've received, and may we be delighted to share the grace with others who desperately need it, as Brandon did a great job reminding us of this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning. And sometimes we can look at a passage like this today and say, Cities of Refuge, what an obscure passage and what an ancient concept. Oh, Lord, it's not, though. Because your word is living and active. There's a principle here, Lord, for us to follow, for us to learn. Lord, I pray that your church here at Oasis would be people who fervently care deeply that justice would happen around us in our world. That we would fight for it, speak out for it. And Lord, I pray, would we be a place of refuge? There's many lost, Lord. There's many who are fleeing the avenger of blood. Ultimately, Lord, it is you who is the avenger of blood. Ultimately, those who go to hell are sent there by you for the living out of an eternal death. You are both the avenger and the redeemer, Lord. You are the high priest whose blood atones for all who call on your name. For this we rejoice, Lord, and we thank you that even in this dark time in our world, we can look to you and know your promise is true. And Lord, I pray that your word this morning would convict our hearts as Oasis Church that we would go out and be the roads and the signs that help those people who are guilty to come and find the place of refuge because of our testimony and our confession about Jesus Christ, who's King of kings and Lord of lords, who died on the cross and rose again and is the Son of God lifted high. With that confession, Lord, you told Peter, I will build my church. With that confession, Lord, would you give us the privilege to be part of that work? And 
it's in his precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.